Welcome to today's episode of the PQI podcast. Today, we welcome Andrew Replin. Andrew is an outpatient clinical oncology pharmacist at the University of Washington Medical Center and Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. His disease specialties include gynecologic, neurologic, kidney, melanoma, and non-melanoma skin, GU, and breast cancers. Today, we discuss his path to becoming an oncology pharmacist, his clinic and team processes, current challenges his clinic is facing, updates in GU Oncology, and the process of authoring a PQI. This episode is brought to you by Cardinal Health Vital Source GPO. Our site of care dispensing solutions provide the end to end expert support you need to launch and maintain a successful dispensing program. From initial evaluation to design and implementation to ongoing operations and patient monitoring. Vital Source GPO provides tools, resources, and expertise to help you deliver exceptional patient care, gain additional revenue, and protect reimbursements. To connect with a Cardinal Health team member, to learn more, go to cardinalhealth.com dispensing. All right. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today on the PQI podcast. And to start out, will you please introduce yourself and tell us about uh, your background and your current role? Thank you and good morning. Uh, so my pharmacy career, I want to kind of start even before my got even really involved in pharmacy. So I grew up in the Midwest. Of course, I live in Seattle now, um, but I grew up in a city called Rockford, Illinois, which is about 90 minutes northwest of Chicago. Um, when people ask me, when did you decide you wanted to become a pharmacist? I've honestly forgotten when the exact kind of tipping point was. Now, granted, I did have a few family friends who either went to my uh, pharmacy school and college, Drake University, not Duke, mind you, as some people say, Drake, um, <laughs> in Iowa. And uh, I had some family friends who were pharmacists. They loved it. They went to Drake. My dentist uh, went to Drake uh, yeah. and just had great things to say about it. And kind of, it just kind of built in my head that this seemed like something I wanted to pursue. Now, Drake had a pre-pharmacy undergrad major that you could apply for, which of course they did. Um, so I only did two years at Drake before they funnel you into um, their PharmD program after you interview and, and whatnot and apply. Um, did my four years there, had the wonderful opportunity to match with the University of Chicago Medicine for my PGY1 program. I always knew I wanted to do residency. Um, and I kind of applied, not on a whim, but a little bit on a whim. Like, that's a great institution. And I was like, yeah, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, no loss, right? Um, well, I matched there. And I was just so excited because the one thing I tell people is, in growing up, we love to go to Chicago. And, you know, you can say you love to visit a city, but would you love living in a, a city like that? You know, who knows? I don't think you can truly predict. Um, well, the short answer is I loved it. I loved Chicago and I had a fantastic time. It was one of the most formative experiences in my life that year in residency there. Of course, I matched with the PGY2 uh, program at the University of Washington, where I'm currently now staying and practicing in my oncology career. I'm in my current role. I'm an outpatient clinical pharmacist. Um, I practice in um, a few different disease states. It's always a mouthful when I explain it, but I do the breast clinic, um, kidney cancer, skin cancer, genitourinary, gynecologic oncology, and uh, neurologic oncology as well. Um, I do a lot of preceptorship, um, research teaching. Obviously, we have a large PGY2 oncology residency program with five spots. 
Um, so I'm involved in a lot of things and I help coordinate uh, students for their APPEs for the University of Washington School of Pharmacy well, as well. So you're, you're busy. You have, a, you have a lot going on. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I do, but I love it. I always like to hear where people started. So that's a great path. Um, but will you talk a little bit more about that journey to becoming an oncology pharmacist um, and kind of just elaborate more on your path? Yeah, and I do, I do like to tell this story a little bit because the honest answer is when I was in pharmacy school, I did not like oncology. Um, <laughs> that was my worst therapeutics, <laughs> therapeutics exam score. Um, our curriculum at, at Drake was largely like supportive care, neutropenic fever, and like side effects of mostly traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy. Um, so to me, it was just one big scramble to memorize side effects and, and recommendations on treating these patients um, with a background that I didn't feel I had the full context for. So it didn't make a lot of sense to me, um, but we did it, right? But when I matched for the, my PGY-1 and when we went to orientation for PGY-1, um, we had a lot of preceptors talk to us, not just about the clinical program, but you know, career and leadership and whatnot. And one of the preceptors told us like, look, this is your year to get a diverse and exciting experience doing things that you may not necessarily want to do in your future, but you'll get a great experience doing them anyway. So I really tried to take that to heart and I stuck my neck out and chose to do the inpatient leukemia uh, service with the University of Chicago Medicine, um, partly because I just wanted to get that experience. And two, like University of Chicago is, is a titan in leukemia. I mean, that's where CALGB started was the University of Chicago. So um, I chose to do that as a rotation fairly early in the year. I did it, had a lot of fun doing it, but actually by the end of the rotation, I kind of was wanting to flex my research and writing chops and actually consider doing an academic and industry fellowship after my PGY-1. So I looked into some of those programs and they're definitely out there, but admittedly in retrospect, the way I applied to them, I don't think I fully understood what I was getting into. Um, and I did, I did apply to some of those programs and some programs kind of rejected me outright. They just said, hey, sorry, we don't have any spots left. I didn't simply hear back from some of those programs. Um, and then I did right before mid-year that year get an uh, interview with one of the industry and academic fellowships. So I was really happy. Well, as mid-year approached and as we basically got to mid-year, I did start to get a little bit anxious and a little bit cold feet about leaving behind the patient care that I had worked so hard to get to um, and knew that I enjoyed and you know, was potentially giving that up for, a, again, a career I maybe didn't fully understand at the time, you know, that being research in academia or, or industry. So at mid-year, I did do an interview with that fellowship. And I will say, I walked out of that interview and I said, no, this is not for me. <laughs> um, Good to know then. Yeah. So at dinner, um, at dinner one night with all my co-residents and some of the, the leadership in our residency program, um, my director, Randy um, Knobel, um, did his PGY2 at the University of Washington um, about 11 years ago or so. Um, and I was at dinner and I said, Randy, 
I think I want to do PGY2 in oncology. And he immediately said, yep, let me set you up with Mary Chi, who's the director at the University of Washington for their oncology residency um, and the clinical manager as well. So I met Mary, um, had a great time with her, uh, did a PPS with one of the then residents and, and preceptors, had a great time, applied to University of Washington, matched, and that's how I got to this current role. Fantastic. We, we had Randy on the podcast um, a few weeks ago. Well, by the time yours releases, a few weeks ago. So he was great. But I think yeah. it's funny how things end up and it's meant to be. So it really is. I love it. It's for me, it was oncology was really interesting to me because it, it was nerdy and science fictiony. I mean, they're doing things now that, you know, we've never done in human history before with science and medicine. And that was a big plus to my, my nerdiness and my nerdy factors. So I liked that a lot. Absolutely. I, I love, I think all pharmacists have a little bit of a nerdy factor. So absolutely. <laughs> so great. Um, so now that you are an oncology pharmacist or what part of your role do you enjoy most and why? One of the most common answers you'll hear, and this is probably true across pharmacy, but truly, I mean, it does mean the world to me and it is the patients that I work with. Um, the oncology patients by and large are just wonderful, amazing, fantastic people. And I think in my kind of biased opinion, one thing that sets oncology patients apart from, um, other, other types of patients with other like internal medicine, chronic illness, or, you know, various other types of, of chronic illnesses is that oncology patients want to get cured. They want to get better. So the vast majority of these patients are extremely involved in their care. They're extremely grateful for the services and the knowledge that you're able to provide them as a pharmacist, a physician, a nurse, you know, whatever profession you're in. And I just love these interactions that I have with patients every single time. Um, sometimes they're challenging. Sometimes they're easy. Sometimes you have to get creative. Other times it's like you're just reading a book to them and that's what they want to hear. Right. So there's so much diversity in working with them, but I always love it. And the little story I'll tell briefly is that just last week I was educating um, a patient under chemotherapy and she mentioned, she said, oh, I'm, I'm recently friends with this other patient uh, with my same, you know, with the same doctor. That's how we met. Um, and she just had wonderful things to say about you. So I'm really happy that you're the, yeah, you're the pharmacist who's going to be educating uh, me today. And I was just, I was blown away by that, that patients are actually out there saying nice <laughs> things about me <laughs> to other patients. Right. So, um, that, that is one of the main things that I love about my job. And that's what keeps me going day to day. Again, I mentioned, I'm already kind of a big nerd and I just look at the explosion in science and technology that we're using in oncology. And it's just so incredible to me. I mean, when I was finishing pharmacy school and going to the University, University of Chicago, um, we got prepped on for our on-call program since we do a 24-hour in-house on-call program there um, that we may at some point be dealing with complications of CAR T-cell therapy overnight. And reading about that just blew my mind that that's the point we were kind of at with um, kind of biotechnology and cancer. Because I, again, in my pharmacy school, we didn't talk about CAR T-cells. So that was totally new to me. Um, 
but you know, every year we see new publications, new discoveries. Um, more recently, we've started kind of doing um, for the gynecologic oncology service, um, the molecular tumor board about once a month, um, where we look at Paris testing and Sengen testing and whatnot. And we look at these really unique cases and, and identify, you know, how can we treat our patients better on the molecular level? And it's just so cool to me. Yes, it's a very interesting field to be in for sure and something new every day. Um, so will you please discuss your clinic at Seattle Cancer Care Alliance and how the multidisciplinary team works together there? Yeah, so our clinics at Seattle Cancer Care Alliance um, and of the University of Washington Medical Center has a few clinics as well. Um, we use um, a disease state model. So um, each clinic is basically divided by disease state. And so for example, I practice in the breast oncology clinic or I practice in the gynecologic oncology clinic, right? Um, so each clinic of course has um, MAs, uh, uh, TCs, which I'm, the acronym is actually eluding me, but they're kind of like schedulers and patient care coordinators. Um, we have uh, nurses that have, I think, more recently been divided into triage nurses and what we call nurse navigators. So helping patients understand what their treatment course across the entire clinic is going to look like. Um, and then navigating some of the financial and social issues, I think, surrounding cancer treatment. Of course, physicians who see patients and by and large make treatment decisions. Um, robust integration of APPs. We have an APP fellowship. Um, APPs are increasingly be, being given the opportunity to get uh, internally credentialed to sign chemotherapy. Um, and then of course, the uh, clinical pharmacist, myself, um, and other wonderful pharmacists that I work with um, who in the day-to-day uh, -day work that we do um, we serve obviously a lot of roles. And one of those formal roles is that the physician writes the chemotherapy. They're the first signature. And then the second signature has to go through clinical pharmacy. That's a hard stop. So, um, every chemotherapy, excuse me, that comes through, um, is reviewed by myself or another pharmacist, whoever's on service, as we say. And we do very comprehensive um, overview, uh, overviews and reviews of the chemotherapy. That was something that I mentioned recently in my PQI in action on infortimab vedotin, um, kind of what that process looks like. And um, patients will get either educated on their chemotherapy um, by myself, or sometimes we have nurses help out, kind of depends on the clinic. Um, since we're expanding so rapidly, sometimes the FTEs don't keep up with the demand. <laughs> so um, yep. Sometimes, yeah, <laughs> sometimes we do share the wealth a bit as far as um, who's educating the patient, whether it be a pharmacist or uh, a nurse. Um, they're fantastic to work with. And many times they ask me, <laughs> you know, what should I be teaching on? Um, and uh, of course, we do drug information questions, um, supplement reviews. I feel like there's uh, a very large interest in kind of the Pacific Northwest and the Seattle area and patients considering um, supplementary medicines and natural medicines, given that um, naturopathic medicine is a recognized profession in the state of Washington. Yes. Um, so we get a lot of questions about that. And um, so um, that chemotherapy gets written by the physician, reviewed by me. Um, it goes to our compounding pharmacy 
um, gets reviewed by another pharmacist, although it's more of the verification step in our electronic health record. Um, the patient comes to their visit, uh, the chemotherapy gets released from the, the EPIC treatment, beacon treatment plan. Um, infusion nurse, of course, administers, and then the whole cycle kind of repeats, no pun intended, given that we're talking about oncology. Um, but we are extremely collaborative and multidisciplinary. I mean, I have physicians and nurses and the MAs and patients calling me, texting me, uh, sending messages, emailing, and it's all a huge team effort. Okay. Um, the one thing that may be a little bit different from SCCA's practice for pharmacy versus some other institutions is that we do use, use a rotating model. Okay. Um, so I spend about one month in the clinic before I move on to my next clinic and a different pharmacist takes over for me at that point. So um, we do have continuity in that I'm rotating through the same clinics consistently, but also kind of the diversity that I do get to actually rotate through clinics, which I actually enjoy quite a bit. Yeah, I like that. I feel like you wouldn't get quite keeps you on your toes too. <laughs> That's true. You you have to learn a lot if you're constantly changing. So, um, are there current challenges or anything in particular you can think of that your clinic is facing right now? One of the more common challenges that that my clinic is facing, and you know, I would love to hear from other institutions how they're addressing this problem, but. You know, a few years ago, the biosimilars for pegfulgrastim started to come out. And, you know, when a patient asks what's a biosimilar, I tell them kind of the simplest way I can describe it is it's like a generic, a generic medicine, but for a biologic drug, right? Like in theory, it's meant to breed competition. And usually when we talk about breeding competition, that talks about reducing costs and things like that. Um, so since Pegfograstim, of course, there was Nulasta, Nulasta Onpro, and we've since seen Fulfilla, um, the newer ones, Extenso, uh, Udenica as well. And I think what a lot of us were hoping for was that that would improve access for our patients and affordability for some of these um, myeloid growth factors. The reality in our clinic has been, it's been quite the struggle still to get financial authorization for a lot of these products. And we do still have insurances saying, no, they can't get pegfulgrastin. They need to fail a short acting growth factor at first. Um, what I think has been really difficult for us from a coordination of care standpoint is when a patient comes in for treatment, we look at their neutrophils, they're horrible. We say we need to delay, we need to delay treatment and we wanna do growth factors as soon as we can. And some of my providers say, well, actually I wanna give chemotherapy today, but I'd like to give growth factor on top of it. Can we make that happen? And I say, well, unfortunately, I don't think we will because we have to pretty much pre-clear all of our patients for growth factor. And sometimes that can take days to weeks. We might get a denial. Um, and we have largely seen that insurances are simply dictating which biosimilar that they can get Although at the end of the day, they're still extremely expensive medications. And that's been really frustrating for us to, in some of these cases, provide the appropriate product in a timely manner for these patients and avoid delays in recovery of their neutrophil counts. Yes, I, I feel like that's a struggle that you're right. A lot of centers are having. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I've heard a good solution yet. Um, and it, I know it makes it even a nightmare on the operations side from having to keep, you know, 
five different biosimilars and the drug in stock and manage who gets what. And it can be a logistical nightmare as well. Absolutely. I mean, every time we give the wrong product, I mean, admittedly, that's a multi-thousand dollar bill for a patient, right? So that's even one single mistake or even one missed biosimilar uh, interchange is a big deal for us. Yes. Well, if you find a solution, let us know, because I think all of our members will want to hear what it is. So come up. You'll be the first to hear. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, And then let's move on to any, any hot topics or studies or anything you'd like to share for GU oncology? So I know you are in all of the different clinics, but I've had experience um, talking with you in GU oncology. So that's kind of the area where I know you best. Um, but do you have any updates or anything you'd like to share there? Yeah, so um, we talk about GU oncology, but more specifically, um, I've kind of carved a niche for myself at my institution as one of the bladder cancer experts. Um, and I've worked very closely with Dr. Petros Grievous, um, who's one of definitely one of the eminent authors in bladder oncology in the world. Um, and he was actually featured on our PQI in action. And um, he helped uh, serve as my physician reviewer for the content of my PQI on infortimab bedotin. So that's been really exciting. Bladder cancer has seen an explosion in new treatments, largely mostly in the metastatic setting um, in kind of just the past three years. So um, we've seen, uh, we knew before that, that patients would primarily get cisplatin or platinum-based chemotherapy as their initial treatment for metastatic urothelial cancer, um, which I'll kind of use interchangeably with bladder cancer. Um, And then we knew that um, PD-1 therapy or checkpoint inhibitor therapy was effective in those patients after Um, uh, platinum uh, progression based despite platinum uh, treatment um, or in the setting of platinum ineligibility as well. But since then, we've seen the release and FDA approval and the publication in at least phase two. And I think there's ongoing trials in phase three for a multitude of agents, including infortimab vedotin, sasituzumab govotecan, which are antibody drug conjugates, um, FGFR inhibitors like erdafitinib, um, we've seen the, the development or the, the utilization of maintenance PD-1 therapy. Um, Avelumab was published um, for use um, based on the Javelin Bladder 100 trial that uh, Dr. Grievous was senior author on. Okay. Um, and so that is now standard of care that patients after getting platinum chemotherapy would get uh, and have a response, have Avelumab maintenance therapy. Um, and then what I'd kind of like to talk about what I'm leading up to is the new publication, which he's, he's a very busy guy. He's senior author on a new publication on infogratinib, which is another FGFR uh, inhibitor for patients who have um, FGFR mutations. And his paper is really interesting because kind of the big question in, in bladder metastatic bladder cancer right now is how do we sequence some of these agents? Since kind of the newer agents have simply kind of come out and been studied in the setting of post-platinum or platinum ineligibility and post-checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Beyond that, it's kind of a wild west on you know, what sequence of agents you should do. So Dr. Grievous's paper with his colleagues on infogratinib was really interesting because they studied patients in kind of multiple lines of treatment. So they did early, which they defined as, I think, prior to actually uh, basically as initial systemic therapy in metastatic cancer to um, 
the setting of uh, second line and beyond um, in metastatic bladder cancer. And they studied infogratinib in patients who had FGFR mutation. And what they identified was that patients derived a benefit regardless of which line of treatment they were in if they had this FGFR mutation, which again, admittedly was one of the inclusion criteria. But when we talk in oncology about metastatic disease and new agents, we so often talk about, you know, this is a last line option, or they have to have failed multiple lines of therapy before they can get access to this. And this medicine is already being studied in the early metastatic setting. And we're hoping to start collect some more of this data on how should we be sequencing these agents. Do patients who've gotten PD-1 therapy respond better or worse to infogratinib, whether they've gotten it uh, pre-PD-1 therapy or infogratinib post-PD-1 therapy? Um, I encourage everyone to read the paper. I think it's great. And it breaks it down again by line of treatment and what patients' um, rates of response were to that. So it's very exciting for me. If you can um, send me the link, or if there, and I know it may not be open access, I don't know, but if you could at least send me the link, we can at least give people an idea of where to find the, um, the article in our show notes. Yeah, I think it is open access, but I'll definitely do that. Thank you. And so that is really interesting information and I know important to keep up with and you're doing so much um, with GU and all the other clinics, but how do you best keep up with information in your... Man, that's a, that's a golden million dollar question right there, right? <laughs> um, um, but how I keep up with, with my diseases and, um, and, and my clinics is, of course, a few different ways. It's multimodal. Um, of course, I'm on a fair number of emailing lists at this point, whether it be ENCODA, NCCN, HOPA, ONS. You know, I've worked with many of these organizations, um, or of course, I've signed up for their resources. And now I get all of these notifications. Of course, uh, ENCODA, um, um, I get uh, invites to webinars pretty much constantly on, on new treatments, developments in treatments. Um, I've seen some more of your podcasts and whatnot lately. I know one of the physicians I used to work with in breast oncology, Dr. VK Gotti, um, did a uh, webinar on neratinib in breast oncology recently. Um, great to see him on there. He's a great guy. He's in Chicago. <laughs> um, Favorite place? <laughs> it's one of them. I'm not going to lie. Um, but um, so I get all these notifications, of course, in my email inbox. And, you know, I try and stay abreast of them. And if anything catches my attention, I look at it, you know, even if it's not in my disease state, if I see some new treatment I haven't even heard of, which is again, been the case for some of these, I feel lung cancer drugs, yeah. um, you know, I'm like, what is that, right? So look into that. Um, I think by virtue of working at a major trial center and an NCCN member institution, I do learn a lot just on the job. Like I'll see a, you know, I'll get orders for a new treatment um, or a treatment I haven't seen used in this setting. And I'll be like, what are they doing? <laughs> um, and I either reach out to my physician or I you know, look in their progress note and they'll be like, yeah, so based on the results of, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, okay. There's new thing out there that's been published. Um, which I also think is funny because I've also alerted some of my physicians to entirely new drugs that have been approved on the market. And they had no clue that that was true either. So um, what I'm hinting at was um, to sodomab vidotin um, for cervical cancer. Um, my physicians were like, wait, what? This is FDA approved now? <laughs> yeah. um, and they didn't even know it was out there. That was one of the few drugs that we didn't, I guess, support at our, our 
uh, center as a clinical trial. Um, of course, I have a really tight-knit work group. I mentioned we have a rotating model. So some of the wonderful pharmacists that I work with in my immediate group, we're constantly supplying each other with new information and, and tips and pearls and new developments and you know, having debates about, you know, should we be doing this or curbsiding their opinion? You know, this patient had this issue, you know, should we be doing this? You know, so I have a really robust group of friends and coworkers and colleagues that um, I have all the opportunities in the world to ask them their opinion and we learn so much from each other. Wonderful, Co collaboration is a good thing. Um, and I just have a couple more questions for you and I'll get you out of here. I know it's early there and you have to get to work today. So. <laughs> Lucky you. Um, so we call this the PQI podcast to bring more awareness to ENCODA's positive quality intervention resource. Um, and I know you authored a PQI and you've kind of touched on it a little here, but what value do you see in the PQI resource for the pharmacist and the team? And then if you'd also tell us a little about kind of what the process looked like for you in authoring the PQI. Yeah, when I, when I wrote the PQI, um, I tried to consider like what the value would be from multiple perspectives, right? And what I mean by that is multiple perspectives in kind of the breadth and depth and um, capabilities and resources that any individual institution or individual might have. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we're a very specialized clinic. So, you know, when I wrote the PQI, that information is not necessarily new to any of the, the team members that I'm working with in my clinic, but it's, it's still a great resource for us to have. Again, because I'm writing it from the standpoint of like, what is the information that a clinician needs to know to be successful to treat with this agent? And um, there in my PQI, of course, there are some treatment decision, um, uh, treatment decision, um, advice and uh, recommendations on what to do for patients who, for example, have certain side effects and whatnot. Um, but I think that has value to nurses and, and other people as well, who may not be directly involved in some of the treatment decisions. Um, but for example, like I put on that PQI, like these are the side effects that we're actually seeing in patients, right? So and that's one of the biggest things that patients always ask me about is like, well, I read, you know, the 50 million side effects on this handout, but am I really going to have all those? So, you know, that's always a pressing question for patients and clinicians who may not be familiar with this treatment is like, what are the actual side effects that I need to know about? So for example, I tried to write those side effects from the perspective of, again, what I think you need to be need to know to be successful to do that. Um, so my value for that is, and my my hope is that everyone from a large academic institution um, could find some recommendation on how to manage these side effects that you know we talk about, um, like skin rash is reported, right? But like, is that maculopapular? Is that acneiform? Is that this and that and you know whatnot? And as a clinical pharmacist, I sometimes feel like I'm almost also an internal medicine uh, clinician. I'm almost a dermatologist. I'm also an infectious disease provider. Um, and I get asked a lot of these questions and I wanna provide real world information in the PQI that I know is gonna be helpful for these other individuals. 
And again, for, you know, more of the generalists, you know, someone who treats all different types of cancer in their clinic, maybe they're a smaller clinic. Um, hopefully my PQI is valuable to them again, and it tells them the need to know information to again, be successful with that. The process for, you know, how I went about writing this, I think for me, it was a little bit easy because, you know, I know some of the PQIs are like, you know, diarrhea management in this treatment or in this setting and things like that. And, and those are larger review topics. And I had the opportunity to just write a really narrow focused yeah. review on a single newly approved agent. I also had the fact that we were one of the trial centers for that. And um, the original FDA accelerated approval was based on the phase two EV201 trial. And you know, again, one of my physician colleagues was an author on that trial. So, you know, we had that real world, world experience. So the process that looked for me is like, I love data. I know pharmacists love data. We love to do evidence-based decision-making. So everything that I try to incorporate into that PQI was based directly on data and experience. So um, I talk about kind of the initial approval data and what kind of the response data is like for that, which is also fun to talk about in retrospect, because when I originally did that PQI, only the EV201 main cohort data was out. The FDA accelerated approval existed, but we only had this phase two trial. And then cohort two data was published. And then the phase three trial data was published. So I actually updated that PQI a few times over its kind of initial lifespan. Um, to incorporate that new data to reveal that these were the new developments based on these upcoming data. And that's a big deal for us. Um, of course, everyone wants to know, how do you manage side effects? You know, what do you do in renal and hepatic function uh, alterations? I mean, that's a very pharmacist-y thing. I think that we always have questions or we get consulted about, right? Like, you know, this patient is having, you know, these issues with AKI, you know, do we need to dose adjust, things like that. That's a very standard, I feel kind of fair pharmacy question. Um, so some of it is definitely written from the bias of a clinical pharmacist. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the, the information is valuable and still geared toward any type of clinician um, yeah. or even non-clinician uh, practitioner in, in an oncology setting. I agree. I think you did a fantastic job on that one. Um, and we loved working with you and on the PQI in action too, and kind of getting to highlight your clinic and how you guys are actually managing patients there. So thank you. Thank you for both of those. Um, and now we'll end with one final fun question. We're mixing them up this season of the podcast. So I know Chicago may be your favorite city, but Seattle is one of my favorite cities. So if I was a tourist visiting your city for a full day, what would the perfect day look like to you in Seattle? <laughs> that answer can vary wildly depending on who you're asking. <laughs> um, I'm asking think, you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, depending on the day, my answer would change too. But I mean, if you were visiting Seattle, um, you know, everyone wants to go to Pike Place Market, which I think is great. And I still encourage you to go to it. One, you should be aware that it's probably always going to be insanely crowded. Um, you should watch out for the fact that during the pandemic, the famous fish guys were not throwing fish during the pandemic. <laughs> uh, so if that's the only reason, 
they have started it more recently. I think it's a little bit more toned down at the moment and they're probably not shouting as loudly as they do. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, people will say, well, Pike Place is really touristy and you know, yeah, they sell a lot of weird stuff that tourists are gonna gobble up and, and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I think Pike Place is such a uniquely fun place to go if you just take an afternoon and just explore it without preconceived notions of what it's going to contain. Yes. Like, like, because there's the surface level, there's the first Starbucks, everyone knows about that stuff. But I mean, literally, you can go up and down flights of stairs, you can get lost, you can find record stores and gem shops and comic book stores and magic shops and, you know, all sorts of weird things there. Um, I definitely always tell people one of my favorite things to eat if you're a tourist in Seattle is Pike Place Chowder. I think it truly is as good as the hype lives up to, or lives up to the hype, kind of worded that weirdly. Um, Pike Place Chowder is phenomenal, but there are so many unique restaurants in Pike Place too that are not located in other locations in Seattle. Now granted, there are a ton of restaurants in Seattle, but I still find some of the weirdest and most interesting food in my experience. Weird probably isn't a good descriptor, but like unique dining experiences is how I should describe it. Um, it's still at Pike Place. Um, the grossest thing at Pike Place is the gum wall. Um, um, I'm not gonna explain what it is because it's okay. literally what you think it is. Um, <laughs> but- Kids near it. <laughs> yeah. Pulling so, it off. <laughs> yeah, tell your kids to keep their hands in their pockets. Um, <laughs> So as much as people will kind of complain that Pike Place might be a touristy location, I still think everyone should visit it. It has a really unique smell to it. It's a great smell. It's very, it, it's something that I always recognize. I think it's all the food and the knickknacks and some of kind of the old wood and stuff they have there, but I think it's a great place to go. So I definitely encourage everyone to go there. Um, if it's the springtime, you have to go see the cherry blossoms at the yeah. University of Washington. Yeah. Again, Again, due to the pandemic, they were actually asking people not to go. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, the um, awesome still bloomed even with the pandemic, right? They do. They do have a, there's a Twitter and there's a camera that goes 24-7 if you want to look at them and you don't live in Seattle. <laughs> um, so I think the cherry blossoms are great. Pike Place is great. Um, I always tell people ride the ferry. Um, Seattle has, I think, the most active, like, like domestic ferry system because you know that's actual transport for people who live out here like it's not a ride like it's actual you know a livelihood for people nice. um, to get to the islands and across the sound and whatnot um yeah you should still do the space needle um they added a rotating glass floor where you can look down yeah. um which may or may not freak you out but i think it's cool <laughs> yeah. um but you know like I'm not an architecture nerd, but I admire architecture. And I still think the Space Needle is one of the most unique pieces of architecture in kind of the entire world. So I think it's great to, to visit at least once. Um, nearby is the famous Chihuly Glass Garden. Seattle's definitely known for glass artistry. So uh, Chihuly was a, an artist um, who had did really unique pieces. He did a lot of like sea life. He had this whole period, like aquatic period, I think in his career where he did these really extravagant glass blowing pieces of aquatic life and whatnot really cool um what i was alluding to earlier is it depends on who you're asking and depends on the day but if you're visiting seattle one of the most 
fun things you might do in Seattle is not actually in Seattle, but it would be hiking in the Seattle area. I mean, I literally, I drive an hour away from here and like there's world-class hiking. I mean, you want waterfalls, you want mountains. It's an hour's drive from Seattle and it's, it's fantastic every single time. My list just grows and grows and I actually can't hike often enough. So I'm actually, it's, the list is growing more than it's shrinking. (laughs) You can't keep up with all your hikes. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a great day. Maybe it'd be two days, one day of hiking and one day of city visiting. So a a full weekend in Seattle. Absolutely. Make the effort. Yes. We, you're making me want to come back. So we haven't been since my son was born. So I think, I think we need to come and bring both of our kids, um, take them, take them for hiking and maybe the fish market. They'd love it. So yeah, I'd love to show you guys around too. That would be fun. Yes. Okay. We're in. So if I can just get the two-year-old to ride, make the plane ride, that's the problem. (laughs) That's step one. (laughs) That's, that's the hurdle. Um, But thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today. You have been great. You're a great supporter um, of Encoda and we really appreciate it. And you were a pleasure to talk to as always. Thanks, Ginger. Always a pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Cardinal Health Vital Source GPO. Our site of care dispensing solutions provide the end-to-end expert support you need to launch and maintain a successful dispensing program. From initial evaluation to design and implementation to ongoing operations and patient monitoring. Vital Source GPO provides tools, resources, and expertise to help you deliver exceptional patient care, gain additional revenue, and protect reimbursements. To connect with a Cardinal Health team member, to learn more, go to cardinalhealth.com slash dispensing. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew. To download this podcast, you can search the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple and remember to subscribe. You can listen on our website at encoda.org. That's encoda.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We would also like to thank Encoda for making this podcast possible, and we hope you join us next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.